Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel, and today I have the immense pleasure to be speaking to Dr. Miranda Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Commonwealth Studies at the University of London, where she also co-convenes the popular What's Happening in Black British History series. At the same time, Dr. Kaufman is a freelance historian and public speaker, working with a wide variety of media outlets and publications, including the Sunday Times, BBC, and the National Trust, and acting as a historical consultant on numerous museum, exhibition, and media projects. One of the most notable, I think, being the 2016 BBC Two award-winning series, Black and British, A Forgotten History. Today, she is with me to discuss her new book, Black Tutors, The Untold Story, which was published in 2017 by One World. Miranda, thank you very much for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Miranda, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself and some of the projects you've been involved in um, over the past few years. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, been doing history for a long time, it feels. Um, I, I did history A-level, I did history at university, undergraduate level, master's, and my doctorate all at Christchurch, Oxford. Uh, my doctorate was on Africans in Britain, 1500 to 1640. Uh, and I always wanted that to become a book. Uh, but I sort of spent some time in journalism and other other sort of freelance historian stuff while I before I found uh, my book deal eventually. Um, and my book Black Tudors, as you say, came out last year. Uh, so I've always been doing some other things on the side. I've done exhibitions with the National Trust and uh, I've always been really interested in public history. So, yeah, working with museums or uh public bodies or you know just sort of giving talks uh sort of communicating history beyond academia to a wider public great so when it comes to i guess the subject of black tutors this is something that you've been working on for a long time what kind of piqued your interest in this subject um well i'd always been quite obsessed with the tutors um but i was sort of trying to find something specific to research and uh, i was in a lecture talking about early modern trade and they suddenly mentioned that the Afri- the uh, the tutors had started trading to africa in the middle of the 16th century and that's really surprised me because i i'd kind of assumed that that trade only started in maybe the 18th century uh and so i wanted to find out more and when i went to the library and started reading i suddenly found these references to that actually of being Africans in Tudor England, um, and I was re- you know, really surprised then. And I, but you know, there didn't seem to be a lot written about it in the books I was looking at. So um, I decided I needed to to start digging into the archives and find more information. Yeah, I mean, I equally reading this book was so surprised by some of the materials that you found in such an early period reference to people of African descent living in England. Um, What are some of the assumptions or paradigms, I guess, that your book sort of serves to shift or undermine? Well, in Britain, there's something called the Windrush myth. 
uh, you know, which actually kind of got played out. I don't know if you saw the uh, the London Olympics opening ceremony in 2012, mm. but they had this whole uh, episode in the drama where they had this sort of opening ceremony celebrating Britain. Uh, and they had this bit where the Windrush, the Empire Windrush, a ship arrives in Britain in 1948 with uh, Caribbean migrants on board. Uh, and they sort of the way, but but the, which definitely happened, you know, seventy years ago. Um, but people often assume that that was the first arrival, really, of significant arrival of black people in Britain at all. Uh, so my work is part of a larger project to uh, show that there's been a black presence in Britain since at least Roman times. Uh, that sort of goes all the way through, really. Um, and so, like you said, people don't expect there to be Africans in Tudor Britain, but but there, there were. Indeed. <laughs> um, what was the geographical scope of your book, would you say? Uh, sorry, going back to paradigms, one of them is about the presence and the other big paradigm is the assumption that all Africans uh, in kind of Western history until you know the 20th century, more or less, were, were enslaved. And, um, you know, one of the big arguments in my book is that actually these Africans in Tudor England were free and we find them being paid wages, being allowed to testify in court, being baptised and recognised by the Church of England. Uh, and, and crucially, there is no kind of uh, set of laws um, that legalise slavery in England. There's a whole concept of free soil. If you set foot on English soil, you become free. So I think that's another really important um Mis- misconception that I set out to challenge. Yeah. What, was that the case? Were people who set foot in English territory in the Tudor period free? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I found a, I found at least one example of an African person actually testifying that that's what happened to them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so then I guess getting into the book a little bit. So your book traces the lived experiences of 10 individual subjects, ranging from a trumpeter to a silk weaver to a prince. Um, what was your process in selecting these 10 people? Well, they're kind of self-selected because um, <laughs> although I found references to hundreds of Africans in Tudor England, um, very, a lot of them you know, are recorded in what I sort of call one-liners. So you'd have one rec- one line in a parish record saying, John Blackamoor was buried today. Uh, and you can't find it, you know, it was almost impossible to find any more biographical in, uh, information about that individual. Um, so so the, the 10 individuals in the book are sort of the the 10 that I felt had the most information about to really sort of try and piece together a life or at least a sort of key key moment or set of incidents in that person's life, the ones that really had a story to tell. Who who did you find the most uh, interesting to research and write about? Oh, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I did each at a time, so I was sort of excited by them each as I was sort of going along. Uh, but I, uh, I think I think uh, delving into the world of kind of swimming and diving expertise in the in the in the, the Jack Francis the Salvage Diver uh, chapter was was really interesting. Um, yeah, learning about kind of early methods of diving uh, was quite sort of amazing and uh, thinking about the skills he had. Uh, and yeah. it's always fun when they get involved in a court case because then you get, <laughs> you get everybody fighting and uh, that, that's always quite fun. Uh, I really, I, you know, I loved sailing around the world with Diego 
uh, on uh, Francis Drake's um, voyages and those um, and learning about the Panama Maroons uh, who sort of formed a military alliance with Drake in chapter three. And, uh, you know, with that, you've got this evidence of the voyage accounts uh, which are always a bit more sort of dramatic than, you know, the old dry mm-hmm. parish register. Uh, <laughs> and also, yeah, there's crazy stories there. And um, there's also, um, we also have all the Spanish officials' accounts of uh, complaining after Drake has raided their port or their ships or saying, oh, no, yeah, this has happened. And those were quite fun to read as well. Uh, and uh, I really, well, I really enjoyed Prince Dederijakawa learning about um his kingdom in modern day Liberia on the river Sestos. And you know, that the fascinating kind of concept of these early you know, we think of if you if an English person takes an African person onto their ship, you think you're gonna they're gonna enslave them. But actually in his case and in a few other cases I compare him with, uh you have uh young African men being brought to London, taught English and then taken back to Africa to workers, translators and trade factors which was, I think, you know, a really fascinating phenomenon. Uh, but, you know, there's lots, there's lots of good stories. Obviously, Edward Swarthy, um, mm. Chapter 4, who is the first known African to whip a white Englishman, uh, which he does on the 3rd of December 1596 in rural Gloucestershire. Um, but, I mean, that, that's a sort of unbelievable story and was even more exciting because absolutely knew, nobody knew anything about it until I found it. Uh, in the National Archives entirely serendipitously because, um, you know, I, I went there uh, and I was sort of sitting down with the search engine and putting in different search terms um, and I tried putting in the word Negro and only two results came up in the whole of the National Archives catalogue and one of them was irrelevant. It was a, set, you know, a document to do with something that happened abroad but the other one was the testimony of Edward Swarthy alias Negro in this court case. But it was just incredible, a, a stroke of luck that I found that because um, that his particular testimony had at some point in the midst of time become separated from the other documents related to the court case because the rest of the court case is, is filed under the names of the uh, the two men who are fighting the court case. So it's called Buck versus Winter. And it's only because that document was separated that it was catalogued using his name. Uh, and if that hadn't have happened, I would never have found him. Oh, my goodness. I love those kind of stories, though. They they make your little historian heart beat faster. <laughs> um, so I also actually really liked in the first chapter with even John Blank, he casually petitioned Henry VIII for a pay raise as a trumpeter. And I was just thinking it must be so exciting to come across some of these documents. Yeah, it was it was good to find that one. Um uh, yeah, I actually, I actually found a reference to it in a book, and you know, but I was was away from London, so but I had a friend who was at the National Archives that day, so I was like, "Can you call this up and photograph it for me, please?" Yeah, <laughs> and he sent it over, and then I like transcribed it within the hour, and he was he was also very excited. Um, this is a colleague of me, mine called Michael Ohajiru, who is, has been so inspired by the story of John Blank that he set up this whole thing called the John Blank Project, <laughs> uh, www.johnblank.com, uh, which uh, he's commissioned over 30 artists to draw pictures of what they imagine John Blank would have looked like. 
Um, oh my gosh. And, and poetry and music. He has these wonderful evening symposiums where all the artists talk about their work and the poets read their poetry and the musicians, you know, do their music. And uh, it's always opened by uh, a current African man of African origin who is a current trumpeter in the royal household, turns up in his full regalia and plays the trumpet. <laughs> Right, plays like a little a little piece on the trumpet. So yeah, we're looking we're looking for a space to sort of hold an exhibition about all of that. Somewhere. Oh man, that but, would be exceptional. Yeah, it's so great. It's so great. Check out the website. I will. Um, has it been difficult finding, I guess, women and children within the records? Uh, well, it's not it's not hard to find children because a lot of the records are baptism records, and oh okay, so they're actually kind of second generation. Um, baptisms of children who tend to have one African parent and one English parent or in some cases Dutch or Portuguese um so so there are plenty of children but then it's hard to trace what happens to them next uh and again I mean there are there are plenty of women um again you kind of get you know, people in the later centuries, people talk about there being more men present in Britain than women because partly because of the nature of of enslavement and that you would rather mm. enslave men because they can you know work they're more physically able mm-hmm. to do the backbreaking work involved but in my period i found relatively equal numbers of men and women in the records um but the problem is then finding women that we are able to piece together their lives with more information because you know the women tend to be these one liners i was talking about yeah um, well, yeah, and coming back, so what would you say, based on sort of each of these chapters, what's the geographical scope of your book? It ta- seems to take sort of a a world history scope to some degree. Mm. Well, it, start, it starts in Britain. Uh, well, Britain didn't exist at this time. Mm. Uh, in the British Isles. Uh, it, uh, because it was called Black Tudors, I actually left out most of the research I'd done on Africans in Scotland as part of my doctorate. So there were Africans in Scotland, but they only get a kind of a mention in passing in, in the John Blank chapter because they're mostly at the court of James the Fourth of Scotland. So that was a kind of uh, parallel to John Blank and the African presence at the English court. Um, uh, but I did find a few other stories uh, and actually, there's there's a woman who's now researching a man that I came across briefly, but she's found more records about him. And he was uh, he starts out as a sort of trumpeter in uh, in Aberdeen, but then he 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 turns up in the church courts accused of adultery, and then he turns up again as a highwayman uh, and gets executed. So uh, that's going to be quite the story when she gets mm. that out. Uh, so there were Africans in Scotland. Um, but because of the nature of their lives, it, when we find Africans in the British Isles, we then have to ask the question of, well, how did they get here? What were they doing? And in order to answer those questions, you end up going all the way around the world. And then I guess in terms of the writing style, you use these really compelling sort of narrative snippets at the beginning of each chapter, mm-hmm. and you employ, a more, I would say, a more playful narrative chronological style throughout. So why did you choose this style for these stories? Um, well, I think people are, you know, basically interested in people. So whereas my doctorate, which was a sort of, you know, an academic piece of writing, told this history thematically, 
you know, with with chapters on how Africans came to Britain, what their working lives were like, what their religious lives were like, you know, what their legal status was, this sort of thing. Uh, for the book, I just thought it, because I was trying to reach as wide an audience as possible, I thought it was more engaging to to tell the story through people's lives and, you know, the, the things we know about these 10 people's lives actually illuminate some of those bigger themes in when you tell those stories, those themes come out. So, so that's, I think, why I did it that way. Yeah. Um, and then you just uh, mentioned religion. So I was actually curious about this. Where does, where do you see religion sort of fitting into to the stories of some of your subjects? This is a, a tricky one because um, from a modern perspective, the idea of renaming someone with a Christian name in a baptism ceremony can seem like a sort of if, effacement of African identity and sort of um, – but but I think we need to think about it from the Tudor perspective. And the, you know, it was a deeply religious society. People were, have, were killing each other about whether they were Protestants or Catholic. You know, the, the Reformation was ongoing. It, it wasn't just you know a, a hobby on Sundays. It was it was fundamental to the way people lived their lives, and so I think uh, I think I think uh, accepting uh, Africans as fellow Christians um, and accepting them into the parish community was that yeah was actually a sort of a, a, a sort of symbol of of of, of social acceptance mm. um, and. And a, a sort of under, a understanding of at least being equal in the eyes of God. Um, I, I, but it's you know it's interesting because uh, in this period you know I'm finding a lot of these baptisms were of adults, and but the church liturgy was not equipped for this. Uh, there was no specific conversion uh, ceremony outlined in the Book of Common Prayer until much later, and so they kind of fudge together. Uh, the infant baptism and the adult confirmation mm. uh, processes and, and sort of fit them into one one thing. But, I mean, it's interesting as well in that it shows um, the difference between Protestant and Catholic approaches to baptism. So um, the Protestants have this big emphasis on education and um, engaging with the text of the Bible so in all, before these Africans, and actually in one case that uh, I found incidentally an, in, an Indian boy from the Coromandel coast of India, um, these, these foreigners are expected to learn enough that they can recite the Lord's Prayer and the Articles of Faith and answer questions about their faith in English wow. before they're allowed to be baptised. In one case... Uh, a London merchant called Paul Baining leaves money in his will for the education of his African servant in the Christian faith. Uh, he leaves this money to the local church minister um, to provide that education. Do you see um, a shift, I guess, as it gets closer to the 18th century, the late 17th, early 18th century with the trans onset of the transatlantic slave trade? Do you see like a shift in the records or the way that sort of free and unfree occupations and peoples are being framed in any of these records? Well, my doctoral search only went up to 1640 uh, and actually I was sort of covering a period um, sort of before. Where, where there's an absence of British slave trading. Um, we know that John Hawkins did his four voyages in the 1560s, but if you look at um, the, st the statistics, um, this, which are helpfully 
uh, on a website called slavevoyages.org, which was a huge project to map all the slave, all the transatlantic slave voyages of all the countries throughout the whole period of the slave trade. Uh, if you look at the British records on that, there's a huge surge after 1640, but there's very little before that. Um, so the period I researched was before before the real onset of the British involvement in the slave trade. However, um, others, other there's a, a scholar called Cathy Chater who uh, has written a book about the African presence in Britain in the long 18th century, mm. and she sort of starts in the sort of 1660s. Uh, and there are some similarities and some differences. Um, Africans continue to be baptised. They continue to sort of work in England um, in a variety of occupations. Um, but I think more research needs to be done, especially on that transition sort of between 1640 and 1660. And um, So I'm hoping uh, that we will be able to sort of fund some PhDs to yeah. continue what I'm do- I did sort of through you know to sort of consolidate it and cover you know cover the whole of the 17th century as well and then in their research be able to start start having done that to start to answer those questions of how did things shift when did they shift did they shift as as much as we think they did um i think attitudes clearly did change especially you know one i think once once the mo- the uh, the most common uh, way in which you would encounter an african was as an enslaved person on a slave ship or on a slave plantation, you're obviously going to have associations with that that are negative. Whereas in my period, there's a whole range of ways you can encounter you encounter Africans. Sometimes they are ambassadors, sometimes they are merchants, sometimes they are um, maroons with military capabilities. Uh, sometimes they are they are artisans or skilled people like um, the salvage divers, the the silk weavers of this world, the needle makers. Uh, so you obviously have a whole other different set of associations when you meet people in those roles. Yeah, um, I would I would say my actually two favorites. Um, in the book were actually two of the women. So Anne Cobby, who worked yeah. in a brothel in the 1620s, and that of Catalina, who mm-hmm. uh, you frame as an independent single woman. Um, could you share a little bit about why each of these cases are so significant? Um, yeah, I think I think in my answer earlier, I was mostly talking about men, wasn't I? And yeah, so there are there were a few women that I was able to find out more about um, than the one-liners. And um, I think, uh, I, well... Part of the reason I don't you tend to emphasise Anne Cobby, Cobby is that she was actually an anomaly in that uh, she was the only example of a like, definite, provable example of an African prostitute that I found in early modern London. And I think uh, scholars in the past have assumed that African women were likely to be working as prostitutes, partly in a kind of... Partly in a, a sort of in the context of discussion about Shakespeare's Dark Lady, um, of the sonnets. So, mm. so I think I think I do try and stress in the chapter on Anne Cobby that she was the only definite black prostitute that I came across. And if there were more African prostitutes in London at this time, we would know about it because the records. Uh, of the Bridewell Court, which uh, co- are constantly dealing with prostitutes, uh, have been gone through, and there, there, you know, there just aren't there aren't that any references 
uh, two two African prostitutes in those records. So, uh, but she is interesting. But uh, she's described as having very soft skin, uh, which is so attractive that men will pay you know well above the going rate in order to sleep with her, mm. uh, much more than you know the other women in her in her uh, in the brothel that she's working in. Uh, although, I mean, she appears in the court records as uh, working in a particular brothel in Westminster, uh, belonging to John and Jane Banks. I gave a talk last week, and one of the women in the audience, his surname was Banks as well, was spelt with the E S, and she was she was quite <laughs> she was quite concerned to know whether these people could have been her ancestors or not. But I wasn't able to satisfy her curiosity on the spot, um, but oh I, sort of said, I said that you know spelling was a bit um, unreliable in the uh, in the sixteenth century. Yeah, fluid, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, so what about Ang? I mean, I think. The the the, uh, the archival record of Anne Cobby is fairly fragmentary in that we only have this one kind of uh, deposition accusing John and Jane Banks of 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 being brothel keepers, which was of course illegal. Um, mentioning her and mentioning her soft skin, and we you know also have the information about the other women she was working alongside. Uh, but from that, I've tried to kind of re, re retrace her steps and. Uh, create a picture of what it would have been like to be a prostitute in early uh, Jacobean London. Um, so, so that's what I did with that chapter. And similarly, in a way, we don't all we know about Catalina over Armansbury for sure is what her goods were, or at least what the, which goods the assessors thought it was worth writing down uh, that she that belonged to her on her death in 1625. And the most valuable thing she owned was a cow. Yeah, um, which is more significant. People think, oh, right, yeah, cow, that's funny. They tend to laugh when they say mm. this. Uh, but actually, you know, people don't realise how significant owning a cow was in um, in rural society at this time. You know, a cow was a very valuable possession. You could um, graze, graze the cow on the common land. You could get milk, you could get butter, you could get cheese. If you had surplus, you could perhaps sell it. Um but wasn't I found it quite difficult to find context for this from the period, and, and but I think some aspects of rural life uh, remain unchanged, and I definitely I found in the eighteenth century records of parishes actually giving poor women, particularly a cow, as a form of poor relief, because once they had the cow, then they they would be able to support themselves a bit better, uh, which was interesting. Uh, yeah. And you know, and I, it was, again, it was a sort of detective work. I had this list of her possessions, and I was trying to glean as much as I could about her lived experience from this information. Uh, for example, she has a candlestick and a tablecloth, which are clearly kind of not necessities in life. Uh, although candlesticks are probably more use, more important yeah. for electricity <laughs> than they are that. But yeah, it was a pewter candlestick. It wasn't sort of the most basic material. Um, which suggests she had a, a sort of slightly below, uh, above average standard of living for that class. And in fact, I mean, uh, the, the fact, the very fact that there was an inventory made of her goods shows that she, you know, that she owned some property, uh, which it, which is partly significant because people assume that the African people themselves were the property in this context. And if you were enslaved, you didn't tend to have property legally. Um. Uh, but but also 
um, the total good worth of her goods in the inventory it was above uh, I think it I think it it was about what was it it was it was sort of uh, what was it nine shillings or something mm. no nine pounds six shillings and nine pence or something something like that anyway it was above it was above uh, the kind of base rate you would only get your goods put down in inventory if it was above the total value was above um, five pounds or something. Sure. Yes. So she's sort of not quite on the breadline, and yeah, the, but the, her kind of lack of having sort of most basic furniture suggests that she must have shared lodgings with somebody else. Um, and then I guess my last kind of question is about marriage. So, of these ten subjects, were any of them married, and and who were they married to? Or do you have a sense of that? Um. Yeah, so, uh, well, John Blank is married to a mystery woman in 1512, uh, <laughs> and Henry VIII uh, buys him a nice outfit for the occasion, sort of velvet cap and cloak or whatever, and um, uh, we, so we don't know who she was, but on the balance of probability, she must have been a Londoner because there just weren't that many African women in England in 1512. Uh, and then let's go through them. No, not Jeffrey, no, not Diego, not Edward. Uh, reasonable Blackman, chapter five, was married as well and had oh. at least three children. Yes, again, and they, yes. Two of whom died of the plague. Oh, yeah. <laughs> within the same week, uh, in October 1592. And, uh, but we, again, we know absolutely nothing about his wife. But again, on the balance of probability, I, I assume she must have been an English woman. We don't know. Uh, by that point, it's the 1570s, so there would be more chance of him possibly marrying an African woman, but it seems unlikely to me. Um, and I don't think... Oh, well, with Anne Cobby, there's an interesting moment. Again, mm. can't really prove it, but I did find a marriage record for a woman called Anne Cobby in the right parish at the right sort of time so shortly after the brothel has been raided and shut down she gets married and it wasn't that unusual for prostitutes to get married there's definitely other examples of it happening uh but I couldn't you know I couldn't prove for sure but then Anne Cobby didn't seem to be the most common name at the time so possible she got married mm-hmm. um but i think i, I suppose uh i was I, I did find marriage records for other people um, and and there is an incidence of most of the marriage records i found were between africans and english people and mm. although most of them were african men marrying english women there were examples of the reverse so in bristol there's a woman called joan maria who marries a man called thomas smith who's described as a billis maker, which means he made, he made bills, which was sort of kind of weapon. Um, and uh, the only, the only records I found of, of African people marrying other African people were in St. Dunstan's and all St. Stepney in the early 17th century. There were sort of three marriages quite close together in time. And at, at least one of the African men there is described as a sailor. So, uh, Stepney, obviously being a uh, on the River Thames and quite a kind of maritime area. That is so interesting. I I wish we could listen to 
all of the anecdotes from the sources that you've used. Um, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by asking sort of the traditional final question with New Books Network. What are you working on now? Uh, Well, I'm quite excited about my current project. So I'm uh, the lead historian on a project called Colonial Countryside, and it's based out of the University of Leicester, but we're working with 10 National Trust properties to explore their history of colonial connections. So not just to Caribbean slavery, but also to, which is obviously my sort of area of relative expertise, and uh, but also to the East India Company and that aspect of British colonial history. Uh, and we're working with creative writers, uh, but also with primary school children who are also going to be mini creative writers. And they they visit their houses, they learn these histories, and then they're going to go off and write personal essays and poetry and creative writing. And it's eventually in year three going to be published. So that'll be 2020, uh, published and promoted and hopefully inspire the rest of the National Trust properties to investigate this element of their, of their histories. Uh, and sort of a slightly related project, I uh, have just signed a new book deal uh, for my next book. It's going to be called Heiresses, the Caribbean Marriage Trade. So I'm looking specifically at women who inherited slave produced wealth from the Caribbean and then married into British society. Um, some sort of notable examples, probably that um, Horatio Nelson married a girl from Nevis. Sahan Sloan of Sloan Square fame, who actually was a massive, a huge collector and whose collections formed the basis of the British Library, the British Museum, the National History, the Natural History Museum and the Chelsea Physic Garden, uh, married a Jamaican heiress. The novelist Tobias Smollett married a Jamaican heiress. You know, and quite a few, you know, earls and dukes show up in the registers as well. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm also going to be looking for, if I can try and find some examples of um, dual, dual heritage women uh, who at the time were called mulattoes. And interestingly, there seemed to be, so far, I found more mulatto heiresses in the literature of the time than in the reality. Uh, famous examples being Mrs. Rochester in um, Jane Eyre. Uh, there's also uh, an heiress from St. Kitts in Vanity Fair and another in Jane Austen's unfinished novel, Sanditon. And there's also quite a lot of kind of lesser examples in le- less, less well-known uh, novels from the period. So that's I'm having a lot of fun investigating that. Miranda, those sound like great projects. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. You're welcome.